Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Whoa. That hour, last, less hour of sleep didn't really affect you guys. That's awesome. All right. Well, I'm Josiah. I get to work with our students and our small groups here at Grace. So if I haven't met you, I'd love to get to know you, hear a little bit of your story after service. So come on over, shake my hand. Uh, let me know a little bit about yourself. Love to get to know you that way. Uh, but I'm excited to be up here launching our uh, next series. Uh, it's been a little bit since I was up here and since last time have a little bit of a life update, right? Our daughter Liliana Joy is born and here January 24th this year, and so she's just been awesome. Oh, I know. There's like, the right one's definitely like the, that little smile, that little dimple there. It's like, oh, gets through every time. I have like, literally, I can change, I have so many pictures of her. I could change my background every day on my phone and have a new picture. It's been, been really nice to have, for sure. And she's been awesome, and it's been great figuring out fatherhood and being parents parents and getting that all figured out. We've got a lot to learn there, but that's been so fun. Uh, one of the m- most hilarious stories that has happened with uh, her was at her first doctor's appointment. Uh, we went in, uh, we got checked in, we're, we're, we're in the room waiting for the doctor, and Grace is holding her, bouncing her a little bit, and all of a sudden, she fills up her diaper, right? And Grace's hand is right there and like feeling it. So those of you that have held babies and know, that is not a good feeling, right? A lot of you guys are like, yeah, it's, it's warm. It's a little gushy. And you're like, ah, oh, man, oh, great. You're like a little worried if it just leaked a little bit. So we're like, okay, well, we got to get her changed really fast before the doctor gets back in here, okay? So we put her on the tables they have in there with the little like plastic paper or whatever it is. So we put her on that. We're like, this will be great to change her on. We start getting her changed. And Ray is lifting the diaper out from under her, she starts pooping again. And like, not just a little bit, but like an entire diaper full again after it's already full. And we're like, okay, I'm holding her legs up. Grace is like, okay, well, I'll hold the diaper here. And we're just like trying to f- figure out what to do here. She's pooping and it's like dripping down from me. We're like, ugh, what's going on, right? And so these diapers are actually pretty amazing because like they expand with the pee and the poop. And so there's like this bucket of, of a diaper with poop in it. And we're just like sitting there like, oh my gosh, what do we do? The, do- the doctor's going to come in and think we're terrible parents. And so we're like, okay, well, here, let's throw this away. And so we pulled the diaper out. Oh, no. (laughs) She started to pee. And you see the paper around her just darken as this puddle of pee just surrounds her. And she's just like smiling there, doing her thing. We're like, oh, my gosh. And so we're half laughing, half freaking out, like, oh, my gosh, wait, what do we do? We got to throw this away. We got to clean up the the paper and rip it, new one, all this different stuff. We, We did get her cleaned up and everything before the doctor got in there. But that's just a little snapshot of what it's been like to uh, have our daughter. And it's been really a blast. Liliana Joy is her name. And uh, so we're really excited to have her. And I know that was a crappy start, but um, I'm excited to jump into this series called Navigate, right? Navigate. And so what comes to mind when you hear the word navigate, right? We usually think of a journey or whether it's navigating parenthood or navigating a path or, or something we're going on, right? One of the most memorable journeys that I've been on was when I went on my first backpacking trip. Has anyone been backpacking before? Right? A couple of you guys. Yeah, it's been, it's actually pretty unique. It's not like a normal just hiking thing, right? Here's some pictures of Tyler. Now, I got to go on with Tyler Jensen, right? Our Power Kids coordinator down the hallway. And you can see us on the left. That's before we were all tired and worn out from the trip. It's like, hey, we're ready to go. And we got all our stuff. And then he's peeking through our tent on the right there. And so we got to go on this backpack tri- backpacking trip together. And it was really cool. The thing is, we'd never been before. We were novices. And so we needed all the, m- the equipment and stuff like that. You can't just walk out into the woods with a backpack. 
You need like a specific bag that's light and good and sits well on your shoulders and your hips and stuff like that. And you needed like some water stuff that would compress and filter water. And you couldn't just take like a steak dinner. And you needed some specific food that could, you know, be small and light. And you needed certain boots and certain sleeping stuff. So we needed all these materials. So we got those, borrowed those to go on this trip. Now, had it just been us we'd probably still be lost in the woods of Pennsylvania on that trail because we had no idea what we were doing, right? And we didn't know the directions for the path. And so fortunately, we went with other young adults and other, more helpfully, guides that knew the trail and they also knew how to backpack. And they've been all over the country uh, and they were there to help us kind of navigate through this trail. And so with their help, we were able to see all these really awesome sights along the trail, all these different views, all these different places that we could see. This is just one of them. And by this picture, I don't think it's that rock there, but kind of behind this, there's this like tilting rock. It's huge, massive rock that if you go to one end, it just kind of creaks over to one side and then you go to the other side, it creaks back to the other side. It's crazy how this huge massive rock is tilting. You kind of are a little worried that it's going to fall over on you and you're going to tumble down the mountain. But it's been like that for years. This weird little cool thing like that, they showed that to us. We wouldn't have found that any other way. So cool, wondrous things like that and these views and trees and all these different mountain stuff that we got to see because the guides helped us navigate along the way. And so no matter if we were novices or if they were the experts were there, we all got to experience the wonder and the beauty of this journey. The same thing can be said of the Bible. Whether we're an expert and we've been through the Bible several times or we're a novice when it comes to we've never been through before, we can all experience the wonder of the story. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about in this this series, how the Bible is a story of wonder and beauty worth exploring. And so that's what we're going to dive into in these next nine weeks. We're going to split it into two series. This first one is Navigate. We're going to ask a couple questions of the Bible. We're going to say, hey, where did we get this? Um, Why do we want to read it? And how do we read the Bible in the first place? So this will hopefully set up a backdrop for us to look at the next one, Long Story Short, is the series where we'll go from creation to the end of the Bible and look at a snapshot of what the Bible is, what the story looks like, this beautiful, wonderful story that we get to explore together. And so hopefully this will create, hey, this is what it looks like. We can navigate this story together. And so we want to continue to invite you guys to join this journey with us, to navigate with us. Whether you are a guide or whether you are new to this, we want to invite you guys on this journey. And it's common to, when we approach the Bible, right, to have some questions about it, to look at it and be like, okay, well, how do we know this is actually from God? This is just another book, right? What makes this different from every other book in the world? And so that's a common question to have and understandable to ask that and be like, okay, well, I don't know the details. And many of you may agree with me and say, hey, yeah, I believe that book. But maybe you're a little uncertain as to what the evidence is or for why we actually do believe what the Bible says. Or maybe you're on the other side and you're a little skeptical still. You're like, I don't know if I believe that yet. It seems still a little like a story tale to me, which is, it's okay. It's a common belief that the Bible is a legend or a story tale. But what we're going to look at today is how this story is not fiction. This story is so beautiful and wonderful and worth discovering, and we'll talk about why we want to look at it today. We're going to look at specifically a little bit of the evidence and what the reasons we should look at this story. I think it was C.H. Spurgeon uh, that talked about defending the Bible is like defending a lion by caging it. That doesn't make sense, right? You wouldn't cage a lion 
the lion can defend itself. You just let the lion out of the cage and it'll tear you up, right, to defend itself. Same thing with the Bible. We don't need to defend it with a cage. We just let it out and the Bible can defend itself. And so that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at some of the evidence, seeing what the Bible does to defend itself for why we should look at this story. Why should we look at it and where does it come from? So go ahead and open up to 2 Timothy, starting in 3, 15 and 16. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We'd love for you guys to use those. We'll also be throwing it up on the screen so you guys can follow along there as well, okay? So we're gonna use this to steer our conversation today and pull from this passage several things that we should know about this story before we first jump into what this story is, okay? And so this book is written by Paul to Timothy, who's a young leader in the church. And he's writing and saying, here, here's some stuff that you need to know about leading. Here's some stuff, some questions that you may have asked. Here's some answers. And he's writing to Timothy with all this different stuff. And so that's what we're looking at. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. Let's go ahead and look at it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There you go. So I want to jump right in there. We're actually going to jump to first 16 first, and then we're going to track back and go to 15. But the first thing we see in verse 16 is that scripture, right, this story is God-breathed. Right, kind of smash those two words together, God breathe, which is not usually a term we hear that often. This is actually the only place we see this word smushed together in the New Testament. It actually takes the word for God and breath and just pushes them together, right? But what it's conveying is this idea that scripture is breathed out by God, serving as an extension of himself. So this concept is actually drawn throughout scripture, a pretty cool theme to follow, right? We've seen it in Genesis where he breathes life into man. The breath of God breathes life into man. But he also, in Jesus, breathes life, eternal life into his disciples with the Holy Spirit as well in the New Testament. We see that concept there as well. And so that's what is this God-breathed thing. It's this kind of a big deal to have the breath of God. And so this first point that Paul is talking about this story, the first thing that we need to know is that it was carried along by God throughout human history. That's our first point. It was carried along by God throughout human history. And so God breathed is still like a tricky understanding, tricky point. So let's unpack that a little more. The Apostle Peter explains what this means when he says this in 2 Peter 1, 21. It says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along there is our key word. The idea and the word used here means carried along by the wind, which is interesting. Think of a, a sail with a ship, right? A ship with a sail, and the wind carries it along by blowing into the sail. Right? The ship doesn't go anywhere if there's no wind. So the wind is what carries it to its destination, right? Same thing as with God breathing into the authors of the Bible. He still used these people with their distinct personalities, perspectives, and style, but he carried their words to their destination, making them scripture. He didn't dictate to them. He didn't put them in a trance and was like, oh, okay, here's exactly right what you should do. He used their distinctive personalities and their context and blew 
wind into their sails, basically, to carry them to their destination. I've heard someone describe this book as God's intellectual property, which is pretty cool. God's intellectual property. This came from the heart and the mind of God. Yes, men put it down on paper, but God blew through them, right? He gave them the words to speak, in a sense, and blow through them the truth that he had. And so that's the first thing that he's talking about here with being God-breathed, right? It's from me. God carried it along through human history. That's important to know. The next thing that Paul says there, right, he says, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So the story, the next point that we need to know about this is that it is helpful for navigating life. Pretty straightforward. Right? It's teaching, rebuking, correcting, all this different stuff. It's helpful for navigating life, just like a path. It helps us. It, knows, it tells us when the, we're on the right direction. It's like, hey, this is the path to take to get to your destination. But it also tells us, hey, you're going the wrong way. This is how to get back to the right path. Has anyone ever been lost before or gotten you know, wrong direction? You're like, yes, that's supposed to be all the time, right? I don't know, when you're a kid, you just hop in the car and like appear places, right? You don't realize how you got there. It's just like teleporting. We talk about this all the time with Liliana. She falls asleep before we get in the car and she wakes up at different places. She must like kind of confuse, like, well, how did I get here, right? It's like teleporting. But the same thing, right? We, we, when, we're, when we're younger, we kind of realize, you know what, now I need to figure out how to get from A to B, right? When you get your temps and they're like, all right, drive to the grocery store. And you're like, I've been there a hundred times, but what's the first turn, right? You're not totally sure. So what do you do? Nowadays, we whip out our GPS, right? I don't know what you guys did before then, but we pull out our GPS, right? And it tells us the right path to go. And so we're like, okay, hey, it says turn right up here, turn left up here. And what happens if we go too far and turn right instead of left? Recalculating, right? It tells us, hey, no, 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 you went on the wrong path. You're supposed to go this way. Turn around and go over here. Hey, here's how to get back onto the right path, right? There's this corrective feature with their GPS. Same thing is kind of what the Bible does, right? It tells us when we're not following the heart of God. And that's what Paul is saying here with rebuke and correct. He's saying, it tells me what, when I'm heading in the wrong direction. He's saying, hey, no, no, that's not what God wants for you. But then correcting us and saying, hey, you know what? Here's how to get to the right path. Because ultimately, he wants us to follow this right path, which is training in righteousness. Hebrews 4.12 gives us this imagery of a sword. Because it's not just about what we do, it's about our heart when we're doing those things. Here's what it says. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So it's not just about walking along the right path, just doing it just to do it. No, God cares about our heart. He wants us to do the things with a heart attitude that's right. And so that's what he's talking about. So it's not just about letting, there's not just about reading the Bible, but about letting it read us and letting it read our heart and tell us, hey, that, that shouldn't be in your heart. Instead, here's the better way, which is that training in righteousness that Paul's talking about. He says, this story can train my heart, my mind, and my soul. God uses this to let us know, hey, this is what the heart of God is. This is what we should do, training us in the right way to go. So as we see with verse 16, those are the first two things. Hey, it was carried along by God. It's helpful for navigating life. But we still haven't answered our original couple questions. Like, hey, well, where does this come from? And do we know if we get this from God? Is it the same thing that we have today? Like, is this still trustworthy? 
So this book, right, all 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 the New, didn't just appear here, right? It didn't just out of heaven or something like that, right? It came from God over time, over hundreds, thousands of years, little by little. And at first, they may sound like the game of telephone, right? Like, oh, well, you guys know that game, right? Game of telephone, right? Where someone has a phrase or whatever that's supposed to whisper to the next partner, and so they whisper to that person, and they think they heard something, and so they, they whisper to the next person, and they think they heard something, and they, they whisper to the next person, and then eventually, by the end of the train, it ends up being a completely different phrase than what you started out with. And now, it's like actually a common belief that that's how the Bible was passed down. And then we then can't trust it because it's probably distorted from what we really had. And you'd be right. If that's how the Bible was passed down, that game is a testament to how hard it is to understand somebody's whisper, okay? Does anyone know someone that just cannot whisper? They're just really not good at it for whatever reason? I have a brother that's like that. That just, their volume is either on or off. My siblings are laughing because they're like, yeah, he's not good at whispering, right? It's just like, yeah, he's just on or off. He doesn't know how to whisper, right? That game is a testament to that fact, right? But the, fortunately, the Bible wasn't passed down like the game of telephone. There was actually this specific detailed process in the way that they determined which books were divinely inspired, aka from God, and therefore belonged in scripture. And so the main difficulty of determining which books went in is we didn't get this master list of all the books of the Bible that was like, all right, here's all the books that go in the Bible. The table of contents wasn't there when they were originally written, right? They came afterwards. And so the challenge is, well, hey, well, which ones were from God first off? And so there was actually a bunch of Jewish uh, rabbis and a bunch of scholars and then early Christians that kind of helped put this together and eventually clarify for people, hey, no, 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 we don't believe those ones, right? Those ones aren't right, but these ones right here, these ones are from God, and we know this to be true. And what they looked at specifically were the authors of those books. But before we dive into some of those specifics, we got to remember, ultimately, it was still God that brought all those together, those books and those words were inspired as soon as God had them write them down. It just took time for everyone to clarify and say, oh yeah, yeah, it is these ones, right? These were from God, not these ones, okay? So here's what they looked at for the authors. In the Old Testament, they looked at prophets. They were to make sure that the men were, that wrote those books were holy men from God called prophets. So compared to the New Testament, there's a lot less controversy over which books go in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. A lot of that goes to the Jewish people were pretty strict on like, hey, yes, this was from God, this guy we believe in. He's, he's got authority from God. They had a lot more uh, attention to that detail. And those 39 books that we have in the Old Testament have been around for a while as the Hebrews scriptures. So not only are they affirmed by Jewish people, but Jesus affirms them too. Right? Time and time again, he uses them as the backbone of his teaching. He constantly says, hey, it was written. It was written. It was written. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, this is true. This is from God. And since Jesus affirms it, we do too. It's like, hey, yeah, the Old Testament was from God. So for the New Testament, the Old Testament, we had prophets. The New Testament, they looked at apostles, Apostles were people that were eyewitnesses that traveled around with Jesus, that spent some time with him, that saw what happened with Jesus and saw his story. They, were, they, were, they had this authority from God to write for him and they were understood and recognized by the early church as key leaders. And so an example of uh, an apostle was Peter. Peter was an apostle. 
And so we actually read from him a little bit earlier. But he was someone that walked around with Jesus, watching what he did and seeing the signs and the miracles and listening to his teachings. Something you may remember from Peter is that he denied Jesus three times. It's a popular story. And he did that. Jesus predicted that, hey, you will deny me three times before I'm crucified, before the rooster crows. And he does. But Jesus rose again and kind of reinstates him. He asks him three more times, hey, do you love me? Each time Peter says yes. And from there he's like, hey, I I want you to be a key person in the early church. And he was. If you read in the story of early Acts, Peter's the one that steps up when they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. He steps up and speaks to all these people and about Jesus. And all these people come to know Jesus and become Christians because of Peter and the key stuff that he does. So he becomes a key role. Lots of people recognize him at the time. They're like, hey, yeah, you know what? I remember him standing up and speaking, right? They would have known and recognized him as a person of God that was, saw what, he, what Jesus did and knew that God wanted him to speak truth. And so people recognized that. He ended up dying for what he wrote and what he believed in. He was crucified and killed for that truth, which only proved the fact that he believed in what he did. He also affirms other apostles as well, like Paul. Paul wrote a lot of our New Testament. And he affirms him, kind of explains a little bit in 2 Peter 3. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with wisdom that God gave him. His wisdom from God. He writes the same way in all of his letters. He wrote a lot of our New Testament, like I said. And speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do with other scriptures, to their own destruction. So these were the apostles, right? Those are examples of apostles. And they were not only affirmed by the early church and by one another, but there were these councils, actually, that came together years after the apostles were alive to affirm, hey, yes, these were real people, these happened, and this is what we have from their writing. And so what they did is they have this process, these questions that they looked at to determine if, hey, yes, this was actually written by one of them. Because at the time, people and heretics and all kinds of people would be like, oh, well, well, I was this too, yeah, if they're claiming that, I can claim it too. And so kind of to differentiate and to clarify, they made these questions. They came up with, hey, these are what we look at to make sure these are true. So here's some of the questions. It says, was the author an apostle or have a close connection with an apostle? Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? Did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? Right, so they kind of looked through a lot of these questions. And ultimately, by 390 AD, they officially have the 27 books we have today. Right? They believed them before then, but they officially kind of put them together, the Council of uh, Carthage and Hippo. If you guys are interested in those kind of details, there's actually a resource I've been using. I know we're getting a little heady here. Um, it's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's by the McDowell's. Great resource to use if you guys are interested in digging into this a little bit further. If you have more questions, great resource to use um, that answers a lot more than we can talk about uh, today, but that's kind of where a lot of this is coming from. And so all that to say, all this stuff that talks about uh, this information, like, hey, you know what? This shows us another point, right? We look at 2 Timothy, and he says, hey, this is useful. And for it to be useful, this story of God is trustworthy and reliable. That's our next point. It is trustworthy and reliable. It's important to know as we move forward in this story, So again, 
it's crucial to remember, although they have this process and these questions, it was still God that moved and worked through them to have what we have today as inspired scripture from God. He still was a part of that process using human beings, which is awesome that he used us to be a part of the story to put together what he had and have what we have today as the Bible, which is really cool. So we've seen that we can trust and see this process that, okay, maybe they had the, the stuff originally, but how do we know we got the right thing today? Right? It's been thousands of years. Is this really the same thing? How do we know we didn't end up with a different copy, right? Valid question, right? The Bible has actually been through tons of tests throughout the years, so thousands of years, whether it's archaeology, whether it's philosophy, whether it's science, all these different tests, and it's held up through all of them. It's actually still one of the most popular books in the world, However, one of the biggest points that skeptics usually point to is the fact that we don't have the the original manuscripts that the authors like Isaiah, Matthew, Paul, we don't have what they wrote exactly. We don't have their original manuscripts. And that's true. But we also have to be considering the fact that we don't have any ancient documents from that time frame. Because, fun fact, all that stuff was written on, most of it was on papyrus, which was drawn from the Nile River, right, and glued together, and all this frail stuff was put together to write on that. And they didn't expect it to last that long and eventually would deteriorate. So what they would do is make copies. They would have people copy down exactly what was written down on the originals, okay? And so to judge the accuracy of any ancient document, experts looked at a number of important factors. I know this gets a little heady, but stick with me here. They looked at how close in age they come to the original, how many copies there are, and how close the content of the copies are to one another. Pretty straightforward. So there's a test that they use to kind of determine for any kind of ancient documents to see, hey, how how accurate is what we got here today? And so that test is called the bibliographical test. Kind of a big word there. But I want to run through this real fast, look at it with the New Testament, and kind of see, hey, what else does this tell us about this story that we have here? So this thing, this test, focuses on two things. Timeline and quantity, those two things. And they're really pretty straightforward. Timeline looks at the time between the original manuscript, when that was written, and the earliest copy that we have, okay? Pretty straightforward. Rule of thumb for this test, the closer that copy was to the original, the more accurate it was. Just makes sense. I also looked at quantity. Pretty straightforward, just how many copies we have of that document. And so when we look at other ancient writings of that time, there's actually a relatively few amount of copies and a huge time gap in between the oldest copy. So for example, works of Plato, we only have about seven copies, but 1,200 year time gap, pretty big. For Aristotle, we have about 37 copies, but 1,400 year gap, pretty big. How do you think the New Testament lines up? We have 25 thousand copies with an 80-year time gap. That smashes the comparison. That's like huge, drastic difference between any other ancient document that we have. To give you guys a little bit of a visual, I'm a visual person, I like seeing stuff on, on things like that, right? So if we stacked up all the paper on an average classical writer that we have, all the copies, it'd be about four feet high, okay? Four feet high. It's about how high the average would be on the amount of papers that we have for the average classical writer. How high do you think the New Testament is? So we're like, Empire State Building, pretty high. 
one mile high. For you guys that know numbers, it's like 5,000 something feet, right? 280, I don't know. Is that like that? Is that right? Yeah, 5,280, right? That's a lot. That is huge, right? The tallest building in the world right now, right, is not even half, it's barely half that. Burj Khalifa, this year, that's not even half, like, that's huge. That's tall. That's a lot of copies, right? It's, what? That blows my mind, right? And all this to say that, hey, we, we see all of this different stuff. We're like, man, doesn't this just point to the fact that this is a great story to look at? And so you may be thinking at first, well, hey, it's great that we have, you know, a mile-high stack of copies, but uh, why not just make one epic one, right? Have God put it in diamonds, and then we know, hey, that's from God, right? It's in diamonds. Well, if you think about it, with only one copy, it's actually easier to get that changed. Whoever had control of that, whether it was a government or a religious group, they could just change the one copy, and no one would know what it used to say. But when you have thousands of coffees spread across the world, it's hard to get a hold of all of them and change one detail in all of them, right? And so that's what we have. Thousands of copies of the New Testament from the first five centuries spread across the world, and they all line up. It's really cool. Like, that just blows my mind. Sorry, I'm a little nerd now right now, but this is really cool, okay? I love this. And so that's why, you know, when we point and look at this, the point that we get from this is that this story that we want to navigate through is specific and accurate. From the amount of quantity of copies that we see and the timeline and how close it is, we can see that this story is specific and accurate. And this test helped confirm that. But there's something else that confirms it even more for me. And it also shows to the trustworthiness and reliability, which we just talked about before, about scripture as well. Look back real fast at our Second Timothy passage. It says, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. He's talking to Timothy here. He grew up Jewish, studying the scriptures. So he knew the Jewish scriptures here, which included a lot of Old Testament prophecies. Right? Old Testament prophecies. I right? had tons of predictions of events from hundreds and thousands of years out to the detail that they predicted to be true. No other book in history claims those kinds of detail. No other book in the Bible and the Old Testament prophecies claims all these things, and they're true, and they all happen. All of that, these Old Testament prophecies show that the Bible is very specific and accurate, which points to its trustworthiness and its reliability. Right? The, the prophecies are huge and awesome, and the fact that those get fulfilled throughout history. Some of the coolest ones, right, from Isaiah, he predicts uh, King Cyrus, right? foreign king, Persian king, he said, hey, he's going to take over the known world at the time from Babylon, and he's going to let the Jews that are in exile go back to their land, right? He predicted that 150 years before Cyrus was even around, a guy that probably didn't really know their prophecies as well, but he predicted it to happen, and it happened, right? Pretty cool. Some of the other awesome prophecies are the ones of Jesus, which we've actually gotten to study here on detail right, in one of our summer series. We looked at the prophecies of Jesus, how there's over 300 messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfills. It just blows my mind. And a lot of these, these couldn't have just been like this weird guy sitting around like waiting, okay, I need to make sure I do this to be the prophet and make sure I do this to be Messiah and this. Like, he couldn't have been doing that with all the prophecies, right? Because a lot of them had to do with his birth that he couldn't have helped. It was his birthplace, the tribe that he was from that was predicted, his family line, the fact that he would be announced by a star from his birth and that he would be born of a virgin, he couldn't really help all those things. 
And also there's prophecies about his death as well. That he was sold for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed by a friend, that his hands and feet would be pierced, garments would be divided by lots, his bones would not be broken, crucified between thieves, buried in rich men's thieves. All these specific details, that's just like 10, all these specific details that he fulfills couldn't have just happened. Couldn't have been even made up either. This kind of story just doesn't happen or be come together by our own means, right? One of the coolest moments of Jesus fulfilling prophecy, uh, I think, was when he was reading this part of Isaiah in one of the synagogues. The story is in Luke 4. We can go ahead and look at it up here on screen. It's pretty cool. It says, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up in, on the Sabbath day. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop, right? Just like, By the way, I'm fulfilling prophecy right now, which was rare to get to see prophecy being fulfilled. A lot of these people he was talking to probably had that passage memorized. They knew what was happening. They were probably looking forward to that good news, to that day of the Lord, to the recovery of sight and all this. They were probably looking forward to that. And then he comes up and is like, yeah, by the way, I'm doing that. You must imagine their minds just being like, blown, like, wait, 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 what? How? What, how are you doing this, right? They, they couldn't have helped but believe in what he was saying because, hey, he's fulfilling this prophecy. It's happening in front of our eyes. And that's what he does, right? He was the bearer of good news, right? The good news that he died on the cross saving us, right? That's what he came to do, to free us from our sin, that oppression that he's talking about. He gave freedom for that. He brought spiritual sight to those blind from their sin. All this different stuff he did fulfill, which is so cool, right? This prophecy and these other ones that he fulfills and the other Old Testament ones only points to the fact that this story is trustworthy and reliable and it's specific and accurate. What a cool story we get to study, right? And so I want to conclude. We have a couple more minutes here. I want to end with one point, last point. And this point really makes this story different from any other story. So it makes this story so beautiful, so wonderful, and so worth discovering. The point is this. This story charts a path to a person. If we look quickly back at our 2 Timothy passage, it says, And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the person that this story leads to. The Bible says we have a problem, the cure is Jesus. It says we have a disease, it's Jesus that cures us. It says we're sinners, Jesus is the savior. We could know this thing, have it memorized, and that's not what saves us. This points to who saves us, Jesus. There are a lot of theories about how to become a Christian, how to be okay with God, how to be even, how to get to heaven. But Paul tells Timothy here that through the Bible, we're made wise that salvation is only through Jesus. Even Jesus talks about the fact that we could, we could know this, 
and miss him. He was actually talking to a bunch of religious leaders when he says this in John 5. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the, the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. We set out on our backpacking trip not to stay in the woods, right? To wander around. We had a destination. We had a place we wanted to end up, a goal, somewhere we wanted to be. The same is with this story. The destination is Jesus. That's what it leads us towards. This book isn't just one book, right? It's a library of books. It's got a mosaic of all these different colors that points and colors this picture of Jesus and this story of redemption of God. It's got a ton of different authors, right? 40 different ones, peasants, kings, teachers, leaders, fishermen, tax collectors, prisoners, 40 different authors. It's got different contexts, three different continents, three different languages, written over a span of like 1,500 years. A ton of different contexts. It's also got different literature as well, poetry, sermons, songs, historical accounts, all this different stuff coming together to say one message, point to one person, Jesus. Jesus. What a beautiful story we get to look at. And so we're gonna continue to invite, invite you guys on this journey and say, hey, come navigate with us as we look at this story. Whether you're an expert Right, if you've been on the trail before, right, like our guides on the backpacking trail, if you've been before, you're like, hey, you know what? I've, I've read through the Bible a couple of times. Hey, take someone else with you. Be a guide. Take someone that maybe hasn't been as much as you have. Walk through with them. You'll explore new wonders and sights and get to show them some cool things too. Or if you're a novice, if you're like Tyler and I that hadn't been before, I encourage you guys, give it a shot. Give it a try. Go with someone else that may have been before. Go with a guide. Maybe you're a little skeptical about going, you're like, I don't know, even know if I believe this thing, I, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. That's okay. Give it a shot. Give it a read. Tyler was actually a little bit skeptical of going on the backpacking trip, right? For those of you that know him, that is not his comfort zone, right? He's a lot more comfortable in a director's chair on the theater stage, right? But he stepped out. He did it. He gave it a shot. I encourage you guys to do the same thing. Give it a shot. Those study guides that Jonathan mentioned, that's what these are for. We're going to continue to encourage you specifically to join with one or two other people and sit down for at least an hour a week. That's it. Just an hour a week and navigate through the story of the Bible to look at what we've been talking about, to wrestle with what we're going to be reading and diving into. This is to hopefully help that, to give you guys a place to start, some questions you can wrestle with, some passages to read. So like you said, they're on our note wall. Grab those on the way out. They're free, totally for you guys. Grab this with someone else. Start thinking of who would be able to navigate through this with. We'll have one for this series. We'll have one for next series as well. We want these to be helpful for you guys. So take advantage of that. They're for you guys to help navigate this series, to navigate this story that God has put together. And it's not a list of do's and don'ts that we're working on memorizing. That's not what it is. It's this story of redemption, reconciliation, and forgiveness that we're exploring. This story is too costly to be fiction. It's not a fake story. It couldn't have been made up. The people that wrote it died for what they wrote and what they believed in. They all went to the death for it, which is 
probably why the church grew so quickly. They saw that, hey, these people are willing to die for it. No one dies for a lie knowing it's a lie. It's because they believe it's true. And so that was what the disciples said, hey, this is true. We're gonna die for the fact that, yes, this is true. If they were trying to fake it, they wouldn't have gone to the death for that. It was a great cost not only for those who believe, but it was a great cost for the one in whom we believe. That was Jesus. He had the great cost of dying on the cross for us. That's what this story culminates in. And I encourage you, if you haven't said yes to Jesus yet, saying yes to him being your savior, that's the first step. That's where this story leads. So I encourage you to check that out first, to say yes to Jesus before jumping on this journey and navigating it because it opens up this story to be so much more wonderful and beautiful. Sometimes that's where we need to start and understand that Jesus died a death he didn't deserve and lived a life we couldn't live, but he gave that credit to us. All we have to do is say yes to him. When we say yes to him, we turn from what we're doing and follow, hey, this is what God wants us to do. And then we continually say yes to him as we just say, yeah, I wanna keep learning about you. I wanna keep understanding what you have for me. And that's what we do when we say yes to Jesus. And so I invite you guys, join us on this journey as we navigate through this beautiful story from God. It's trustworthy, it's reliable, it's specific, it's accurate. Ultimately, it points towards Jesus. We have a unique opportunity to not only read this story, but to be a part of it. Because when we say yes to Jesus, we are then a part of that story. So I invite you guys, join us as we navigate this story. It's one you won't want to miss. Let's pray.